Hey, Biz Dads. Welcome back to another episode. Excited to get to episode five. I think a big milestone. We've made it this far, Andres. Excited to get into today. We're going to wrap up some talk on The Last Dance, picking up in episodes four, five, and six. Talk a lot about sports as things start to uh, tiptoe back into our television sets, at least. Got a partnership spotlight as one of our features, a really unique cul-de-sac chat with one of my neighbors and Tim Spiker, who we talked about last week, author of The Only Leaders Worth Following. Got a Millennial Minute by Twist. She's going to take us on a fun little voyage that you'll learn her name, Twist, means something. The DJ is going to take over on a lot of business news, and then finally we'll wrap things up with the final four and the quarantine norms. Let's get into it. This week's Biz Dads. All right, Andres. Believe it or not, I actually watched all two episodes last night. I was shocked. What'd you think? Well, I don't know. I just think it keeps getting better and more interesting. I mean, going back to four, one of the highlights for me was learning a little bit more about Phil Jackson. If you are a basketball fan, you probably know a little bit more about Phil. But uh, for those of you that aren't, they uh, they broke down some of the things about Phil that made him just the Zen master. That was fun. It was cool to see that. And then I remember those battles with the Pistons. So those were my highlights from episode four. And then obviously they covered the Bulls first championship. Yeah, last night, it was awesome. I mean, they really covered a lot of like, I guess, Michael's marketing appeal, and they kind of got into why he was so be like Mike, right? I remember that era, it was cool to want to be like Mike, you know, when we were watching him win championships. And so I thought that was neat how they covered that. And then I don't know, I just every time I watch these episodes what always gets me and you hear you know these guys come on who are super competitive and obviously great at their craft is just even they are in awe of how competitive and how much drive and how much you know winning meant to jordan you know i'm a competitive person but i don't think anybody's ever matched his level of competitiveness I mean, he always yeah. he, he was always recognized as that. And I think when you get into five and six, episode five and six, that's when I think if you remember before this whole thing started, people said people are going to think I'm kind of a jerk when they watch this thing. And and I don't think anybody would have made that point until episode five or six. He gets into a couple different things there. But what I loved about episode four, he talked about the Zen master and how he and Rodman got along. I found it fascinating. I was reading an article from the group um, that did this, they had done a uh, an interview on, on NBA on ESPN, I think it was, and they had talked about how Rodman showed up you know, two hours late to his interview. They were going to try to interview him for 10 hours, and he said, you've got 10 minutes. And then they finally talked him into giving him like, t- like an hour, and he had the craziest request. He said, I need you to go get me a tuna sub from Subway and a chamomile tea. And that was how they got Dennis Rodman comfortable <laughs> enough to sit down for the hour that they got him. But when you get into episode five, that's when you really start to see that almost that level of arrogance that is Air Jordan and him talking about Coach and talking about, you know, the Isaiah and the dream team talking about uh, even Kobe towards the end. It was just really like he didn't want anybody. There was a moment where they're getting ready to win their second back-to-back, their, their first back-to-back, right, 92. They're comparing Clyde the Glide and Jordan, and he's like, it's not even close. He's like, I respect him, but it wasn't even close. And, and even Magic. And hit 6-3 in the first half right? Of that game. <laughs> and Magic steps up and's like, yeah, man. He, he told me beforehand. He was mad that they were comparing him. 
And uh, it's pretty fascinating. I just think it's amazing when you see that level of competitiveness and it turns to that that much arrogance, but it's warranted. Like, you can't get mad at the guy for talking about how good he is because he was. Yeah. A couple of things that, that stuck out to me as well in four and five were Jordan would find any little slight that was real or perceived and use that as motivation as – you know, this internal motivation to drive him, whether it was Clyde, you know, whether it was Jerry Krause thought Dan Marley was a great player. And right. so he lit him up in the, <laughs> and lit him up in the finals versus the Suns, whether it was Isaiah and the walk off when the Pistons left the court is almost like if you crossed him, you know, you were going to pay on the court. And uh, he, he took that all the way to the uh, Hall of Fame induction where, you know, he read off in the famous speech where he read off all the people that had crossed him or, or uh, done him wrong. So yeah. kind of an interesting look. And then, of course, they got into some of the perceived flaws of his character in terms of not standing up for more political and social issues. Some of the uh, off the court news that became really big in that, you know, run about gambling and all these other things. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's just compelling TV. You know that that one part's pretty interesting because I it, I've always had a, a a problem or an issue with people expecting that someone just because they're famous has to step up and make a stance has to to have a have an opinion and he very much said that that wasn't what he wanted to do he was focused on his craft and I, I don't blame him for that I mean I don't think you have to be the individual now there are others that their opinions are very much warranted I'm not uh, I'm not in any way similar to Michael Jordan. So I, I, I allow him to have his point of view and I allow others to have their point of view. But I thought that was pretty interesting how the media was looking for ways to poke through crystal clear image of Michael Jordan. Almost yeah. you know, unfairly. Yeah. Well, and Ahmad Rashad and, and others, you know, that were interviewed, uh, President Obama, you know, America will be the first country to build somebody up and celebrate their greatness. You know, we love we love winners, right? At the end of the day, we love a winner, but but there's another side of it, which is we, we love to see the mighty fall. And that's just, you know, you see that playing out with Jordan where he's had all the success. You know, he's got the Teflon image, got the major endorsements from McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Nike. And then slowly you start to see people wanting to understand, like, what's really going on in a practice? What's really going on behind the scenes? So. Yeah, I mean, for, look, for we can have that, a... For those that weren't Jordan fans, it's probably given them an image that maybe they knew, but maybe they didn't. Well, and look, I, I think we can have a philosophical conversation all day long about whether or not we need to continue to build people up and, and then try to break them down if they get too big. I mean, at the end of the day, he made a great point. You know, when he talked about his gambling and the trip to, to Atlantic City before, you know, one of the uh, Eastern Conference final games of the Knicks, you know, I mean, again, these guys are, these are, they're adults, they're professionals. You know, if he had a problem, he's probably got more money than he knows what to do with that. He's gambled more than any of us would ever think about having in our lives, but that doesn't mean he has a problem if he's got it under control. And, you know, we can have a whole discussion about the media too. And I hope one day we do get into how the media has handled all of this stuff mm -hmm. from the pandemic, but you don't always have to have a story. And that's the problem is the 24 hour news cycle means we always have to have something and it all becomes nowadays, they didn't have clickbait. Could you imagine if Michael Jordan was around in the era of clickbait and TMC right. and Twitter and everything? I mean, yes, he's around now. I get it. He's an executive with the team. But, man, yeah, I couldn't two, imagine Two that. final takeaways I had from the show were the 92 
dream team and how competitive those practices were and just how amongst a bunch of alphas there was one alpha and and that was Jordan just how the NBA became a global sport and a global brand after the 92 Olympics and you saw that playing out in the streets of uh, Barcelona so no it was just it was cool it was good TV well, a little transition into the sports business side of the conversation. I love the Nike aspect of episode, I think it was episode five, about how Jordan didn't want to be at Nike. Nike was a running shoe company at that point. He had loved Adidas, but Adidas was not in a position to get their act together to be able to take on the biggest, what became the biggest icon in sports. How'd you like to have a time machine if you're an Adidas exec to go back in time and figure that one out or to change your mind in the Converse guys? You know, they talked about the Converse guys said, you're not going to be bigger than Bird or Magic. And, you know, we all know he was. But before we get into the sports thing, I do have to also say this, TJ. You know, we're five episodes in. We've been fortunate enough to have some great listeners and some good friends who are giving us some good feedback. And we got our first review. And I don't know if you read this first review. But this this review came from one of our most loyal listeners. He's been mentioned in the podcast a lot. Your dad, we all call him Bambi. He gave us a review, and you know, I I don't know, maybe we're just not doing a good enough job. But you know, he gave us a four star out of five star review. I got a wow, feeling we get harsh. Harsh. I'm not one to pay attention to the critics. Wow, four out of five. We huh? need. I mean, I we need to, have to figure have to out what we're doing wrong. Having him on the show. I think we're going to have to because I mean, we got to figure out what we didn't do. I mean, this wasn't a bad Uber ride. Bambi, tell us what's wrong. Come on. we got to get better now. But I thought that family would a, at least give us five stars for our first one. A, uh, yeah, that could have been a fat finger. You never know. <laughs> Look, I mean, the feedback is critical. I, I mean, I'm hopeful that more folks will uh, will offer us suggestions on how we can uh, take the show in a variety of directions. We never lack for topics. You know that, Brad. So no the uh, – you know, hopefully over time we'll be able to uh, engage more with some of our listeners. But uh, yeah, Bambi can be a harsh critic. I know he's got a lot of time on his hands. He's now retired from the uh, U.S. Postal Service. So there might be some better podcasts out there. <laughs> well, hopefully he'll send us uh, some lessons we can learn from here. Just finished the first Saturday in May. Today is uh, May the 4th be with you. Or as I learned earlier this week, I had to ask my wife what all these Justin Timberlake memes mean and she educated me on the fact that it's just gotta be may which i found <laughs> fascinating didn't know that justin timberlake was a meme just because of one of his songs but it is uh may 4th saturday the the kentucky derby my favorite sporting event you've been to the, the kentucky derby parties the first saturday in may is never complete without a good kentucky derby party and watching the horses run for the roses uh, but i was devastated that we didn't have that this year um, but there was a really cool virtual Kentucky Derby that they ran where they put all 13 Triple Crown winners against each other. Secretariat won, beat out Seattle Slough in a uh, really close finish coming from from way back. But I just thought that was fascinating. And I've had the pleasure of being at the Kentucky Derby several years. And it just, you know, again, it just, just sinks home how many amazing things were missing. So I had to just yeah. throw that out there. No, I remember DJing a, a Derby Day party before, and you know nothing beats a uh, sunny day, first Saturday in May, to be able to watch you know just the all day action. Now I know it's kind of a bummer they didn't we get to yeah. do that this year. Well, it's cool that they're coming up with creative ideas to to create programming. But we talked a little bit about how sports are starting to to tiptoe back into our lives. You see a couple announcements on things that are that are that have been announced that we're gonna start seeing NASCAR back without fans. Uh, mm -hmm. UFC is this weekend without fans, I think in Jacksonville. 
So they're going to be in an in an arena, you know, in a U.S. state without without any fans in the stands. They had actually joked about buying an island and using the island to fight on. But I've been watching this now. My son Ben is diehard into wrestling. Mm. We have gotten into WWE and AEW, which is Turner's new wrestling league. Um, yeah, full tilt, man. He is all on board. So we spent the weekend building WWE championship belts. We're that much into it. But for the uh-huh. past probably six or seven weeks, they've been wrestling without fans in the stands. So they've been doing their normal weekly programming and broadcasting it. And I think there's something to learn there for all of these sports leagues. The programming quality has been great. The content has been great, but it's it's not the same. You hear you know the the loud noises and you hear every word that the the athletes or in this case the wrestlers are saying. And you've got a couple of the you know ancillary. Or the other wrestlers out on the, the shoulder auxiliary sides of the building and whatnot, but it's just, it's really not the same. Now their storylines have continued and it's been good programming, but at the end of the day with UFC and NASCAR, when we start getting into live sports, these are actual participants with actual fans. I'm all for it. I want them to get going because the faster they do that, the faster they can get fans back in the stands. But I think they need to pay attention to what's happening because it's not just about the television program quality. It suffers a little bit in my opinion, um, even though it's been done really, really well. Yeah, I have a question for you, Brad. Yeah. So is just a curious, is pay-per-view completely out of the question at this point, given there's just not enough content out there? If I know that UFC and some of these others, are people willing to pay? Is there demand for it? Oh, yeah. Given think, how desperate um, people are? For- WrestleMania, which happened four yeah. weeks ago, actually did the first ever two-day pay-per-view. And it was $37.5. I think for two days, it was, it was, it was $75, I think for both days of programming and it was all pre-recorded, and it was in an empty venue. It was in their training facility. You know, again, Ben's into it. We paid for it. I wish I wouldn't, but it was, it was good. They did a good job with it. They had a couple pre-recorded matches, um, which probably being in a venue wouldn't allow you to do it. You know, do that much pre-recorded stuff. But, um, but I think it was one of their biggest years ever from a pay-per-view standpoint. People are dying for this stuff, man. I mean, the NFL draft, we talked about it already, is a perfect example. These virtual events that are taking place, that a million people are tuning in on Sunday afternoons on Fox Sports 1 to watch iRacing. You know, our business is being impacted by that because we're actually selling iRacing, representing a handful of the drivers. Pay-per-view is still going to be hot, man. And this UFC thing will probably be one of the biggest ones ever because people just want to see that fight they want to just see what it's going to look like yeah i mean like we talked about in regards to the nfl draft one of the things that i thought was really cool about the draft was you got a peek inside of the coaches and front office personnel you know at home and you got to see that they were quote unquote real people right and i was curious just because if they could somehow utilize this opportunity to give people you know a sneak peek while there's no games into you know how do you build a franchise? You know, what are practices like? I just think that sports fans are willing to go a little bit further than just watch games. And I think now, because there's so many games that are in jeopardy, if leagues could get creative about creating content where the cameras can follow the players, the the front office, and show kind of some of the behind-the-scenes storylines, just like this Jordan documentary has, to the extent that they, you know, the teams and get comfortable with having all over the place and they can do it safely. Oh, there's a, there is such a thirst for it. I, and I don't know if it's going to be quenched even with these things starting to roll back out. I think people just are looking for, for 
anything that they can talk about. They could potentially gamble on. They, you know, they could set appointment programming because that's what sports is, right? It's the best yeah. form of appointment programming. The more we can do that, the more they can get that type of programming in there, the better off we are because I think it gets us back to that point. I'm still a believer. I'm optimistic that there's going to be a switch that flips sometime in summer that says, you know, we figured out more about the virus. We're going to get fans into stands. And, and maybe if we can get, you know, get these things going and some of these states start to open up and whatnot, we can see a trend back to to live sports. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but the NBA today, actually, they sent a proposal. I'm sorry, MGM sent a proposal to the NBA offering the season to be run in Las Vegas. You know, when you look at what Vegas has to offer, it could be the perfect setup. You know, all of the individual hotel rooms who have nobody in them right now could each host a team. You know, there's plenty of hotels around Vegas. Now, you wouldn't want to be at the bottom of the barrel getting one of the Circus Circus. You want to be at the MGM Grand. (laughs) Right. Or the Bellagio. Right. Any of those. Right. But there's enough hotels that can manage it. And, you know, maybe that's a mix. I saw um, that's a that's a, a recipe for for success. I saw an article where the Venetian is actually installing thermal cameras at all of their entrances from here on out, and they're going to start taking body temperature for every single person that walks through the doors of the casino. I mean, is that the new normal? Yes, it is. I think we're uh, we're about to in in uh, embark i was looking for the word but i think we're about to embark on a i guess the the better term is more of a a post 911 kind of change in how we you know go about just moving freely i mean after 911 you know there was just all these new protocols and changes and i think you're going to see a lot more of that especially in big venues i know you know my brother he works in he works in the events uh, business out in los angeles and you know i don't know all the details so i can't speak to it specifically but just in broad conversations i mean i know they're talking about a lot of new measures to keep fans safe and keep players safe and personnel safe and you know eventually you got to get thousands of arenas i don't know if it happens this summer this fall this winter but i mean there's just a there's billions of dollars on the line as we saw in that espn report that came out this week yeah well again i i don't i don't know if this is really a popular statement or not but i'm gonna say it anyway for me you know we've never worked so hard to protect certain aspects of the population before which i i'm totally for i'm not against but i think we need to start thinking about how we roll into more of a herd mentality. There are several things out there that have vaccines that are still not 100% effective and still put medically sensitive people at risk if they're out in public. So I think some of those things need to be taken into account. And I think ultimately, you know, Vegas is a good example. Maybe, you know, there's there's ways the NBA can start to be, for lack of a better term, the guinea pig. I hate saying that because it sounds negative. But, but by rolling this out there and starting to allow some people to potentially – you know, within a city, attend some of these games. Um, Summer League is always very, very successful in Las Vegas because the NBA supports, you know, the Las Vegas community. Fans from around the community fill the Thomas and Mack Center and, they, you know, they, they have good turnouts there. I've had a chance to go a couple of times. It's a really great event. Hopefully, the NBA, who's always a great leader in, uh, at, at, you know, as a league in general, could find a result that could help fix this and start to find a, find a solution. Yeah, one of the things that, as I've read up on 
leagues and sports and trying to get things going again, one of the things that I thought stuck out in this situation and in the pandemic from a leadership perspective, I know our show's, you know, talking about leadership is one of the things we like talking about here. It's really tough. And so I wonder at at what point does there have to be that leader who can kind of step above all the contingency planning and all the scenarios and just kind of say, this is what we're going to do. And that leader is able to galvanize folks to follow him. In the case of the NBA, is that Commissioner Adam Silver, and he's able to successfully get, you know, players on board, you know, their representatives on board, league officials, sponsors, media, owners. And and I feel like that's part of the challenge. You know, obviously, they've got to find a state that would host them. But there's got to be somebody that's got to be able to put something down on the table and draw a red line under it and say, we're going to do this. And there's going to be risks. But for the sake of the viability of our company, the the viability of our league, you know, we've got to get back to, you know, playing in some way, shape. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of brands, you know, as I've told you, you know, our main business is, is working with brands to try to connect them with properties that we represent. And, you know, whether it's our, our friends at major league fishing, who hopefully we're, are back on the lake soon or, or the iRacing I've talked about, we're talking with a lot of brands, just seeing what they're doing. And a lot of them are having contingency plan fatigue. You know, it yeah. seems like there are so many people who are out there planning on these contingencies. By the time the contingencies are all figured out, we're going to be back to normal and the fl- the switch will have flipped. And that's a ton of wasted time. Now, again, that's idealistic. That's that's hopeful speak. But I do think there is some harm in spending so much time continuing to, and again, probably not an unpopular, or an unpopular topic, but spending so much time planning for all of these things. I mean, I saw a poker table that Darren Ravel had tweeted. Darren Ravel had tweeted. If you don't know who Darren Ravel is, he's a kind of the sports business guru. Great Twitter, great Twitter follow gets made fun of a lot, but he posted a picture of what the new poker tables are going to look like in Las Vegas. And it literally had plexiglass on the front and both sides creating small little pods, not expanding the table at all, but creating small little pods. You're still going to be rubbing elbows with the people next to you but at least you're not facing forward. I don't see where that's any different. I don't see how that solves anything. Again, like that's those gas stations, you pull up and slide your money under the little, you know, cut out. <laughs> right. You're still, you're still touching yeah. the money. They're still receiving the money. And, you yeah. know, I don't know. That's just my two cents. Tell me about the Little League World Series being canceled. Man, you talk about that hits home, right? We have boys playing baseball spring the field for two months. Hopefully they'll get on the field. I noticed that the Little League World Series like league organization didn't cancel like the league play, but they did cancel the World Series, which is a real shame because that, yeah. that was always a fun highlight. Well, I mean, I think it's the goal of every 12-year-old and every kid that, that's growing up to be 12 to play in Williamsport. And it's a shame because that's kind of a little bit of Americana that's that's lost, right? I mean, that's that's a great piece of television in the, in the summer ESPN's covering the heck out of it you you get to meet these kids who are coming into their own little personalities it's devastating and I mean we're still here in Georgia under 12 I think I think up to 10 or 11 the states govern their own little league it's not governed by little league international 12 yeah. obviously is because that's kind of when you get to the pinnacle the finals there's still a good chance that we could play here you know I think our league just sent out a questionnaire asking who would support a summer league and and we were you know, I had two kids so I made sure I got two votes in for a heck yeah 
but it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, these kids play for for the love of the game. Obviously, they they play. A lot of them start to play for all stars. There's there's kids that play rec ball and and travel ball, and um, you try to get to that all star level. There, that's at risk, you know, because of the time frame might just not may not allow it. You know, I think at the end of the day, you gotta we gotta get these kids active again. We cannot go an entire summer without these kids having any sort of camps. No understanding on when school's coming back. No organized sports. I think the damage is so much deeper than we're probably talking about. Yeah, we started talking about, my wife and I, Heidi, you started talking about, you know, how do we kind of, once school's done here in a few weeks and maybe we're back to work, I'm back to work in an office setting, et cetera, the, and she's kind of back to work doing her thing is, you know, how do we kind of get the kids out doing things if there are no organized sports? Definitely there's no camps from what we're hearing, at least for June, maybe July. You know, gosh, we're still hoping to hear back in the next few months if schools are going to open this fall. So I agree. We uh, we would love to play ball this summer. Between softball and baseball, there's just a lot of uncertainty. The kids are getting into other stuff and doing other creative things. But yeah, the, the socialization element with young kids is so important. Getting them out, being a part of a team, being around other adults, you know, learning some of that structure. So yeah, it's hopefully coming, but so far no definitive answers. It sounds like. Yeah, you know, it's and you and I were talking about this um, this report that came out from Washington University in St. Louis that uh, they showed on ESPN. The pandemic has cost twelve billion dollars in the sports industry from the youth all the way to the professional. And you know, at first I I thought maybe that sounded a little high. I started reading a little bit more about it, and it's probably. It's probably not the, the finishing number. It's going to be, be a lot more. I think it's hard to tell because I do think if we can get back to things by a July or August time frame, there will be an opportunity to salvage some of that money. But, man, that's a lot of money, $12 billion with a chance to go higher. Yeah, no, it's a lot of jobs. You know, we've talked about this over the first several weeks of our podcast. Um, you just hope that, you know, kids can get back to playing ball and people that work at arenas and support these teams, uh, you know, aren't out of work indefinitely because those uh, those are great jobs. And people do as much for the passion they have for the sport as they do for the paycheck, uh, probably. We'll, yeah. we'll have to see. Well, you know, some of the numbers that stood out to me is $371 million in wages lost twenty for 21, 20 million hours. The TV revenue, again, that was... I think 2.2 billion on national T revenue and 2.4 billion in billion in tourism for the youth sports. Going back to what we talked about, things like little league being lost and travel ball and whatnot. We're seeing that travel ball may actually come back sooner than little league because they're independently run. So hopefully, we're at least playing some sort of baseball out there. But man, we could talk sports all day, DJ. I don't know about yeah, you, but good. I could talk about this stuff all day long. Yeah, no doubt. I want to jump into, real quick, one of our weekly features, our Partnership Spotlight. So I saw something really interesting, and again, this goes to the things that are being done that are that are probably part of the new normal. And you and I travel a lot, right? Um, we hit a lot of uh, hotels, whether you're a Hilton guy, a Marriott guy, whatever. But I saw this amazing partnership where Hilton, across their entire network, is now created a partnership with Lysol to seal off every room after it's been cleaned. They're going through a deep cleaning of all of the high-touch products. Um, when a room has been cleaned and someone has checked out, that room has been cleaned, it will literally be sealed um, so that it can you can determine whether or not it had been tampered with or someone had entered it prior to you walking in. I mean, I thought a very creative way for Hilton to get out on the front ends 
uh, of this thing and to partner with a brand that is so well respected in in cleaning everything like we've all been using the heck out of some Lysol wipes pretty cool partnership we're getting we're getting bizdadpodcast.com up and we'll put more of this stuff on there but pretty interesting partnership I thought it was very worthy of our first partnership spotlight all right back at it uh, this week Andres we talked about it last uh, last show we are going to get into interviews we're going to start having a couple people that uh, have unique jobs, unique ideas and concepts that they wanted to share, friends of ours, people we don't know. This week, we were very lucky to get Tim Spiker, the author of The Only Leaders Worth Following and a small business owner as well. So let's talk a little bit with Tim for this week's Cul-de-Sac Chat. All right, we've got a very special treat here with Biz Dads this week. We have our very first interview, Tim Spiker. Uh, founder and CEO of The Aperio, and author of The Only Leaders Worth Following. Also, this is an authentic cul-de-sac chat because Tim is a uh, is a neighbor. Tim, <laughs> welcome. Right. Thanks a lot, Brad. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about it. Well, look, this is, it's interesting. You don't really know your neighbors until you start a podcast and ask them to, to uh, be on your show, I guess, because fascinating for me to know that you've authored a book like this and that the type of work that you do leadership is such an important part of, of my life as a college athlete. Um, so tell me a little bit about you, yourself, your family, let the listeners get to know more about the spikers. Yeah. Well, the, the spiker tribe, a few doors down the street from you guys, That's right. we've got four in our family. So we've got a 10 year old an almost nine year old, a seven year old and a three year old. And Anybody who's got a three-year-old knows the three-year-old is in charge of everything. You know, there's laughter and tears in every day, uh, I'd say. And uh, sometimes we get it right, and lots of times we're learning. On the leadership side of things, it's been 20 years now where I've been really, really focused on the issue of leadership. And I had one of those moments. I know that people, you know, they don't always have this thing that they always knew that they wanted to do. But... I was, you know, my late 20s getting ready to start grad school and somebody invited me to an open house for uh, what I didn't realize. It was actually a, they were tricking me. They had invited me to a recruiting meeting uh, for a pyramid scheme company. <laughs> but, <laughs> Those are always um, fun. And, and no offense to anybody who's had, you know, great success through those things and have loved them. I wasn't interested, but during the meeting, they started talking about what it means to follow somebody. And it was just all negative. It was all like how horrible it is to be an employee. And for, for whatever reason, in, in that moment, God put it in my head like, it doesn't have to be that way. What if somebody were to say, what's it like following so-and-so? And you were to say, what's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me? And so it just went from there. And I started interviewing everybody who would give me time to learn as much about leadership as I could. And I, there's just a whole line of things that happen. Eventually, I got to be in the room when some really awesome research happened. And then I've been talking about that ever since. So that's, that's the fascinating. Path for me. So how in the world, you know, as a, as a guy who owns a business, I've often thought about how do I get into that thought leadership role? Probably even more so in your line of work, you have to build credibility, respect. How did you do that? How did what was the thing that got you over the edge? What was the the lucky break? I mean, what was what was the moment? I think I think the research was the was the lucky break. I happened to be. We had a uh, the consulting firm that I started working for. We had a leadership practice that took people up onto the the west side of Pikes Peak, 
for a week at a time, and we put them through a number of assessments. And they started asking us about connections between those assessments. Can we be predictive in, in what we're going to see in our leaders based on assessment responses? And we we had enough data to run the numbers. Now, I, I could ask the questions, but my colleague Vanessa was the one that knew how to make the computer run its magic. So she took all the data and it was a story where we were looking off to the right for one thing and found nothing. But the SPSS software is great because it'll look for correlations where you're not looking. And wow. it raised its hand on the opposite side and said, hey, guys, you should look over here. There's something interesting. And that really began to that that research data point that we stumbled upon and found quite by accident really is what has kind of propelled me forward into a greater clarity around the work that I do. Now, I asked this question cautiously because right before we got started, you said, told me you had done a little research following last week's episode, <laughs> and I figured no better time than the to, as you're talking about the research than what you may have learned or found out. This may not be this may not make it in for the record, no, depending no, on what you say. I think, <laughs> I, think you'll, I think you'll want it to because there's amazing alignment. That's so awesome. the the short story of the of the most important part of the research uh, that we found is that three quarters of your effectiveness as a leader comes from who you are, not what you do. Now I say three quarters because it's a nice round way to say it. If you want to be technical, the number was 77%. So hmm. 77% of how effective we are as leaders is a function of how well developed we are as human beings. And it's not, you know, I've been to business school. I didn't have a class on this. You know, they didn't they, they didn't mention the who, not what class. That wasn't <laughs> one that, that I took. Right. I had a lot of I had accounting. I had a lot of marketing classes, but but this class we didn't we didn't have. And so it took us a while. You know, as I say that phrase, it took me two or three years to really begin to understand what the data was pointing toward, just to sit with it and let it simmer and try to understand ultimately how these ideas of being inwardly sound and others focused really translate into better results as a leader. But let's go back to what you guys were talking about in the last episode. So the three of you finished by talking about what? The influential uh, leaders yeah. that we have, have had in our lives. Yeah. So you and Andreas and Twist are talking about, in, in, in the words that I often use with people, who are the be who's the best leader you've ever followed? Right. And it's one of my most favorite questions to ask because I've never had somebody respond to me saying, like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Every single time they light up, yep. they get excited, and here comes a really great story. So as I was listening back through your description of your dad and Bill Hodge and Andreas talking about his dad and Dr. Rinleb and then Twist talking about you, I just did a little exercise as I do with people in the room all the time when we're first getting initiated to this idea of who, not what. And I listen to them describe the best leaders they've ever followed, which is what you guys were doing. And on a whiteboard, without the room being able to see, I'm keeping track. Hmm. I'm keeping track of when they talk about a who quality and when they talk about a what quality, a skill or an ability as opposed to the guts of who somebody is as a human being. Wow. And the words that you guys used collectively were transparent, 
especially with Bill, you talked about his generosity of time. Mm-hmm. That's not a skill. That's a quality of who he was That's to give right. that time to you. Andreas talked about humble, generous, caring, warm. And Twist brings up a phrase like a second dad. And I will tell you, like right now. It cost I get, me a fortune, get, by the way. <laughs> well, those are expensive comments, right? <laughs> now, I get goosebumps thinking about that because – even as I stretched it a little bit into sc- some of the skill departments, like, well, okay, they said that. They're probably referring to this. When I kept track of the who comments that you guys made versus the what, you made 12 who comments. You made three what comments. 12 wow. out of 15 is 80%. Pretty darn close to 77% of yeah, your effectiveness. And I will tell you, that result happens every single time I do that exercise. There, and, and you ask people, tell me what made the best leader you've ever followed, the best leader you've ever followed. They never say, well, she was just a whiz with Microsoft Excel. You can't, <laughs> you can't believe what and, – and, and it's what's really interesting is they don't even usually talk, a thing, talk about things like profit or efficiency. Now, they'll talk about successes – and if you drill one layer below that, you start to hear qualities about who these people are as human beings. And and it always ends up, I've never had anything below 70%, and sometimes it's as high as 90 It's wow. just very consistent that your experience matches up with exactly what the research says. You know, it's fascinating. And thank you for doing that, for taking the time to do it. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's great to hear that because you don't, really think about when you're talking about an individual, you don't think about whether or not the words fall into either category. It flows naturally. And that's why I love you're doing it kind of independently without them knowing. But I would imagine that applies even when you're talking about different types of leadership, whether it be someone who's leading you athletically, someone who's leading you from a business standpoint, all of those things. I mean, it's still the who, as opposed to the the what, right? I mean, in any aspect, it's always the same. Absolutely, because there's a connection between who and engagement. So one of the fun exercises that I like to do with groups is we offer them an opportunity, kind of a, you think of it as a promotion. And it has a huge challenge that goes along with it to say, hey, this is going to be really hard, but it's going to be worth it. And we'll talk about, pretend you get this invitation this email from somebody that you really, really trust. Mm-hmm. And then you give it a, a score on how much am I engaged in that and pretend like you got that very same email from somebody you really don't trust. And I did this exercise with a group last week and the difference between receiving the is literally the exact same words. It's the exact same email both times. The increase in engagement, getting that note from somebody who I didn't trust to somebody who I did went up 286%. And ultimately, that's what this is about. Because we trust a well-developed person. If somebody was inwardly sound, just put it in really overly simplified terms, you're not crazy, (laughs) you're not off your rocker, and you're others-focused. You're not showing up at work for your ego or for your bank account or for everything. You're showing up at work for others. If you combine those two things, then I trust you. When you say run through that wall, I'll be like, okay, I'll run, I'll run through the wall. Wow. And that greater engagement, and there's over 300 studies worldwide that show the connection between engagement and performance. So you're right. It doesn't matter whether it's business or athletics or education. 
we trust people who are more well-developed human beings, that trust translates into engagement and that engagement gets results. You know, as a guy who owns a sales agency, it is the number one thing we try to develop is that level of trust because it's it, it, what you're explaining is is the cold calling process, right? I mean, mm. I'm reaching out to a CMO at a company. They don't know me from Adam or Eve. And how how am I layering in an understanding and appreciation for their business that helps develop that little bit of a trust? I can't get past the fact that they don't know me. But my words can hopefully help deliver that level of trust. Have you seen anything that works in that capacity that where, where there's someone you don't know and how they're able to build a trust in first impressions? I've had that very experience you're just talking about. One of, one of my best colleagues in this work is a great consultant, very wise woman named Michelle Pape, who has a, has a business located up in, in Minnesota called Next Monday. And I met her through a cold call. She, she called me. I was, I was a leadership development manager for a company, and she called me. And we started talking. And I, now I don't have another story in my life where a cold call ended up, <laughs> where this ended up. <laughs> right. But but that but that was because of Michelle. Michelle, what came through in the phone in that first conversation, even though we both knew it was a cold, a cold call, was that she actually cared about my world. This wasn't just about her making a sale. And then, and of course, that didn't seal the deal. We had. 15 more phone calls over time and over time she's gone from a cold call to a colleague from a colleague to a a great friend and that is because what i got to see with michelle from the very first phone call over the course of a decade now is somebody that when she picks up the phone it is not all about her and that just came through again and again and again and again she has a little sign off on her email that says in your corner now, there's a lot That's of great. people it, it, that really fits here, but there's a lot of people, and I think this is important to understand. Anybody could put in your corner on your email. That doesn't make you actually in somebody's corner. You cannot trick this. You can't trick this in other people. Maybe you fool somebody for a month or six months, but over time, people are going to see who you really are. In your corner perfectly describes Michelle Pape, and it's her being not just about herself that took it from a cold call to one of my most treasured relationships now. So I that, that very thing happened to me. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and, it, and again, I, two things. One, we talk a lot about parenting here and it's amazing how parenting from a leadership standpoint is so you know important. The things that you're talking about, the fact of being inwardly sound, making sure that there's level of balance. We talked about that last week, a balance and a consistency in what you're doing. I think that being inwardly sound allows someone to have that level of balance, to not be too extreme one way or another. And then, you know, others focused. I love that. I mean, I've had a chance to work in my career with brands like Chick-fil-A who, you know, have that, that level of servant leadership that they mm-hmm. constantly talk about. And it seems very much like others focused falls within in that context. Yeah. Yes. Very, very strong connections between others focused and, and servant leadership for sure. Yeah, that's great. So, Coaches have influenced my life from my dad, from the moment he put a bat or a soccer ball uh, in front of me. And you've got a great coach's story. I recently lost a coach very unexpectedly. That was my high school coach. It was one of the most influential men that helped shape me. And I still keep in touch with several coaches that 
have had an impact in my life from athletics and who've had an impact in my life, probably more so than I could ever share with them. You tell a great story about your coach, Coach Keedy at Purdue. Tell us a little bit about that and what's in the book. Yeah. Well, I have to I have to throw one shout out in there before we get into the Katie story because yeah. Katie is probably the second best coach I ever had. The best coach I ever had was my dad. My dad, you know, my dad actually worked around athletics with the West Virginia University football team for 40 years, but he coached my basketball teams as I was a kid, and he would always say that he didn't know that much about basketball. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but he knew a whole lot about kids. And that is what, so he, to this day, he still sits in that top spot as the best coach I ever That's had awesome. because he vote because he, he focused on the things that were most critical, especially for a kid. But I did have a chance to, uh, to play basketball at uh, Purdue with the broadest definition of the word play that we could possibly use uh, 27 whole minutes in two years. So and coach Katie is as competitive a person as you'll ever be around. I mean, he hates losing and you you fed off that competitiveness and you know his background athletically he was he was in the tryout with the Pittsburgh Steelers at one point and I think if you watch the way we played basketball at Purdue you kind of got that <laughs> you kind of got that sense is yep. that, that these guys were going to get after it physically but I ended up transferring from Purdue. I didn't feel like I was making as big a contribution to the program as I wanted to, but so my relationships there were great, but I ended up finishing at a Division three school, Washington University in St. Louis. And so I moved on to a different situation where I played more in one game at Wash U than I did in my whole career at Purdue. So that's kind of a funny sidelight. But I finished up my, my playing time. And I was living in St. Louis at the time, and a letter came in the mail, and it was from Purdue. And so I open it up, and I start reading. And it's a, it's a letter from uh, Bruce Weber, who's now the – you know went on to be the head coach at Illinois. He's the head coach at Kansas State now, but he was still an assistant at Purdue at the time. And Bruce was explaining what had gone on in the program and something that they were doing. Purdue won three Big Ten championships in a row right after I left. Now, I'm hoping there's no correlation between those two. <laughs> but, but the letter was really generous, I guess is the best way I could say it. What it said is, we're a program, and we've reached a point that we're very proud and excited about. But there's no way we would have reached this point without building the program with the players that were here beforehand, not just here and now. Mm -hmm. And so in Coach Katie's most recent contract with Nike, he put a clause into the contract where Nike had to deliver a piece of Purdue basketball swag to all the former players once a year. And so Katie built that into his contract. And I just sat down in my living room. I thought, this is nuts. I was a walk-on who played 27 minutes in two years. And I'm getting a letter saying that I have somehow contributed in any type of meaningful way at all to three Big Ten championships in a row. And I just, you know, to me, that is, that says a lot about who Coach Katie is. Because we couldn't do any, I mean, once I left school, like, what could I do for Gene Katie? Right. Nothing. He's a Hall of Fame coach who, who had so much success. He didn't need my approval. <laughs> I mean, that's even a funny thing to even say. <laughs> but he, here he is thinking about, the players who had come before and and I even had transferred for goodness sake, but he right. was including me in this. And it's just a, it, it, I think it speaks exactly 
to the type of person that Gene Cady is. And it's why the motto to this day, now Matt Painter, who's the head coach uh, at Purdue now, we were teammates. So he I was there at the same time as Matt. And to this day, play hard is the mantra of Purdue basketball. We had it on the back of our practice shorts. And I left a lot of skin on the floor at Mackey Arena. And I know a lot of other guys have too. But one of the reasons why Purdue gets the type of effort that it does out of its players and is known nationally for how hard and how tough its players are, it's because Gene Cady wasn't coaching us to satisfy his ego, to fill his bank. It was not about Gene Cady. It was never about Gene Cady. It was about Purdue. And you look at the relationship today that Gene Cady has with Purdue University, and it is tight. He is around. He's there. He's a part of the program, even though he retired 15 years ago. Yeah. And that's because of the quality of human being that he is. Yeah, it just goes to show that your time together is is so important. But the relationship that transcends that time together, the time that the impact that somebody can have on you, you were there two years, really. And that, that one that one element of him remembering your role and remembering all of you is so impactful. And I think whether you're a parent you're a business professional, you're a coach at any level. Competitiveness is something that a lot of us have. And sometimes yeah. it's hard to stay to stay within ourselves. But at the mm -hmm. end of the day, you got to remember that there are people, there are uh, people who are being influenced by how you act, how you respond, well, the lessons true. that you're talking about. And, and and if you can keep those things in mind, as hard as it is, keep those things in mind knowing that that lesson and those things will transcend and it's a shame to say, but even some of the kids who aren't getting the lessons that they, they need to be getting elsewhere are hopefully getting those right lessons in some environment. And the role and the responsibilities that we have, whether we be a boss or a, a youth coach or a coach at any level, you know, you've got to make sure that you figure out how do those, how do those messages transcend your time together? Yeah, somebody's always watching. And right. boy, is that never, that's never more true anywhere than in youth sports. Somebody is always watching. And so we, yeah, it's important for us to steward the opportunity regardless of what, you know, it, it doesn't have to be in athletics. It could be in art. It could be in music. But when you're in that authority position as a leader with, with young people, somebody is watching your every interaction and you get a chance to, to show them, you get a chance to communicate to them that they matter regardless of their skill level, you get a chance to model for them what it looks like to care about other people. And in fact, when you do that, it's not just a nice thing that you're doing. You're, you're actually, if we go back to the research, you're actually helping people take steps towards being a better leader later on in their life if they understand that being others focused is part of the equation. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat with us. I think we're going to have to have you back. There's there's a lot more to cover in The Only Leaders Worth Following. Tim will have plenty of cul-de-sac chats, and we'll actually probably <laughs> do one of these in the out in the street here before we know it. But thank you for taking the time. Good luck with everything. And we'll be posting more stuff about Tim and, and where you can get in touch with him because there's plenty of lessons to learn. Tim, thanks for joining us. Brad, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, buddy. All right, Andres. I think we're going to have to have Tim back for, for some more stuff. Pretty interesting stuff there. The moment that we usually wait for or dread, I can't tell which one yet, but this week's Millennial <laughs> Minute brought to you by Producer Twist. So just to keep you all up on all the latest drama and gossip, 
If y'all didn't already hear, reality star Kristen Cavallari and formal NFL quarterback Jay Cutler are divorcing after 10 years. Oh, my God. And it is getting nasty. They're fighting over custody of their three children, and apparently there is irreconcilable differences. And then we have— Well, hold on. Anybody that has seen Jay Cutler at any point— would guess that this was not going to be a clean break if it ever happened. The guy doesn't do anything easy. Well, everyone's saying love is dead. The world is pretty upset about this one. But then we were surprised to hear supermodel Gigi Hadid and her boyfriend Zayn Malik from One Direction are pregnant. And they're five months pregnant with a baby girl. So after that terrible news of Kristen and Cutler... Everyone was very excited. Then we have Barstool going absolutely wild over Britney Spears releasing a video of her saying that she's finally back in the gym. And she just casually throws in there that she lit two candles. One thing led to another. And oopsie, she burnt her gym down. (laughs) I I saw this on Instagram and it is the dumbest video I've ever seen. This It's very much like that's how you got the name Twist. Is that you have this like random you know, M. Night Shyamalan style curveball that comes at the end and yeah. you're like, what just happened? And then the video yeah. ends. No, that was amazing. And lastly, never say never. I said out loud two weeks ago that I would never date someone who plays Fortnite on the reg. And karma is real because I swear the second those words left my mouth, my boyfriend has been playing Fortnite ever since, hasn't dropped the controller, and now I'm dating a Fortniter, and it's worse than I thought. Does he make ninja so, kind of money? No. Just wastes all day long <laughs> playing. It like, is a nightmare. Again, tell Will that when this, you know, he's ready to become a biz dad, we're going to have to take him under our wing, Andres, and teach this kid what life's all about, man. All right. That's this week's Millennial Minute. <laughs> Thanks, Twist, for taking us on a ride Thank as you. always. DJ. You've got a lot of uh, good information we were talking about as it relates to what's going on in the business world. Drop it on us. Hey, uh, well, this is you know one of those segments where you try to find some levity and something uh, interesting, uplifting about what's going on. So I've got a little bit of both. So on the PPP loans, uh, that's been in the in the news a lot, and I know Brad, you and I talked about some of the early segments. So couple of little takeaways on the PPP loans. There's definitely going to be a lot more scrutiny on the second round of loans. You've seen a lot of public companies who were recipients of the first round of loans have come back out and have given back the money. One of the big groups uh, that was, I think, the single biggest beneficiary of the PPP loans, which is a, a group that's in the hospitality and hotel industry called Ashford announced after a lot of public commentary and some politicians coming out that they were going to return 70 million of the 126 million that they applied for. Incidentally, I did see that the Lakers organization, according to Forbes, is worth $3.7 billion, announced that they were returning their $4.6 million uh, PPP loan. And so I think there's more to come on that front uh, as the uh, treasury and the government try to get money to small and medium-sized businesses who are definitely hurting and uh, in desperate need of it. Not the large companies aren't either, but uh, it's just definitely something to follow. And then um, in terms of bankruptcies, some of the brands and some of the concepts and some of the companies that, that are either in restructuring or have declared bankruptcy this last uh, week, J. Crew came out and uh, announced that they are going to you know, be going, they're tumbled 
into bankruptcy. I saw that. Um, That's terrible. Gold's Gym. I think they're not the first gym company that's obviously been hammered in the shutdown. Uh, we saw today some news that came out, or maybe last week, that Top Golf hired some restructuring advisors. So some of these big, big companies that you know have been totally shut down over the last few weeks, just with no, no customers, no consumers. I mean, it's really starting to show up in their in their financial statements. Yeah, you um, know, it's really interesting. Was especially these gyms. I think the ones that are are able to create some of these virtual workouts that you're seeing. I'm like we're I'm an F45 guy, my wife's an OTF guy and they're staying alive by keeping those memberships going by providing virtual workouts or digital workouts. You can't do that at a Gold's Gym necessarily cuz you're in there, you know, lifting the iron, man. Yeah. They survive. Yep. Yeah, no, it's going to force if it hasn't already these these different industries and concepts to to really rethink their business model. So just two other points on Saturday, the Woodstock of capitalism was uh, was canceled. So you know, in addition to one of the first Saturdays in May, or the first Saturday in May, always being the uh, the Kentucky Derby and the Run for the Roses, it's usually around that time when Berkshire <laughs> Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, hosts yep. their annual meeting in Omaha. Twenty thousand folks from all over the world will fly in and spend the weekend in Omaha, and the highlight is usually the live Q and A with Buffett and his longtime business partner Charlie Munger, holding court for six hours, and you hear, you know. Warren Buffett and him, you know, wax on about what's happened in the year prior and how the economy's doing. Well, this year it was held virtually. And, you know, one of the key takeaways for me in that meeting was that Berkshire Hathaway was a very active investor after the financial crisis in 08. And so far, they haven't bought anything. They haven't invested anything big. They've got $107 billion on their balance sheet in cash. And uh, they're looking for things to, to buy. It's 137 billion will buy a lot, but they were sellers, and some of the big stakes that they sold were in airlines. So they dumped, you know, a lot of their, if not all of their airline holdings in uh, in April. So including our local airline uh, Delta. So that that's interesting, and uh, a lot I've of got people a company. follow. You got a phone number? I've got a company they can buy. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure there's a lot of companies reaching out to uh, the, to the Oracle of Omaha, as as Warren Buffett is known, looking for not only advice, but also potentially a partnership because um, he's had the Midas touch for, for many, many decades. So it'll be interesting to follow and see. I'll keep, I'll keep our listeners updated on kind of some of the things that he's doing because they tend to be a bellwether for, you know, for where the economy's going. And then lastly, for all of you that have a reason or saving money in 529s and other savings programs, it, it was a brutal first quarter in the uh, in the stock market. But uh, lo and behold, April was the best month in the market since 1987. The S&P 500 gained almost 13%. The Dow advanced a little over 11%. And uh, this was the biggest monthly gain in the S&P since World War II. And the Dow had its best month since in, in over 33 years. At least on a positive note, April was a, was a good month if you were invested in the equity market. You think that'll continue? You think the market will continue to trend upwards? I think it's going to be very choppy for the next few few quarters is my, you know, my sense. Um, of course, I'm not giving anybody investment advice, but I think there's just a lot of uh, uncertainty out there. You know, we saw a lot of the big tech companies last week, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, all had, you know, strong earnings. Amazon announced that they're going to be spending as much money as uh, as ever before to protect their workers and investing in infrastructure. So you kind of expected that the big tech companies that kind of dominate the market were going to do pretty well, and they did. But I think, you know, my sense is there's going to be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of volatility in the next uh, few quarters. So buckle your chin strap. We're ready for it. So as we round out 
this week's show, The Final Four, we are this week going to discuss the top four new quarantine norms. And let's start with you. What's a new quarantine norm for you? It has to be that FOMO is eliminated. This is might be the happiest I've ever been. Not happiest, sorry. Just the most tranquil I've ever been with never looking at Instagram, looking at Snapchat, seeing what's everyone doing. No one's doing anything. This past few months have been a dream. So FOMO has been officially eliminated. Maybe this will be very formative for the Gen Z and the millennial generations, Andres. There needs to be a study about that. Maybe we'll, <laughs> we could look into it and see how how that kind of thing that was that made a millennial a millennial may be eliminated through all this. Well, you should definitely have some FOMO, and because you missed on Saturday night, the first time I've been on Facebook in, I think, four years, um, I did a live DJ set. Now, my wife proceeded to tell me that that's now been uploaded and is forever on Facebook. For those of you that want to, what kind of music um, my kids and I listen to on Saturday night, there's apparently now a live DJ set out there, so you should have some FOMO about missing that. Brad, go to you. Um... (laughs) What is a new quarantine norm for Mr. Olecki? You know, ours has been uh, getting on the family bike rides. Um, as we record right now, my family went on a ride without me over to, to uh, a friend's house and back. So the family bike rides have been big for us. We got all all kids now riding. Margaret Ann and I both have got the cars all set up, and we're um, we're cruising, man. It's been fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we've seen you guys out pedaling around. That's cool. And it's it's good to see so many families out there doing walks and biking together. We've definitely noticed that. You know, mine has been, so I'm kind of a boring one. You guys have cool stuff. Mine's a little more boring. With all of the shutdown, local libraries in Smyrna, in this case, and probably in many other parts of the world, are shut down. So if you're one of those people that checks out like 25 books or materials at a time, as they call them at the library, materials, they've just let you keep them. And so I have enjoyed having tons of reading material laying around because, as you know, Brad, I'm a little bit of a bookworm and um, and just having lots of uh, having lots of stuff that I don't have to turn in. It, it kind of feels good. I could get used to it, but I know I'll probably end up having to turn a bunch of materials in here in like two weeks. So <laughs> that's been fun. I wish and I read I- more. Yeah. Now, we're going to introduce a little uh, book of the week segment on the show at some point, and uh, Brad and I are going to take some of our best books that we've read either in the past or that we've you know, gotten from, uh, from our listeners, and we're going to profile them just like a, a little segment. So be looking for that in the future. And then was being able to support our, our favorite local restaurants, and uh, some of the restaurants have come up with some creative ways to keep their regular customers coming in. Brad, any favorites? Anything that you uh, you guys have been kind of loyally hitting up here over the last two months? So uh, we've had a, we've had two favorites. Uh, you know, one for us is our buddy uh, owns uh, a restaurant called Porchlight Latin Kitchen. So we've been getting his his takeout uh, when we can because he's selling out so fast, which is great to see that kind of support. But then we've also been doing um, MTH. If you haven't got over to MTH yet to do their pizza, they're selling their pizza dough. And of course, they're pies and whatever, but they're doing bagels, a special bagel deal that they do for, for Sunday mornings. So we've taken advantage of that, getting a little pizza dough and cooking the big green egg pizza. That's awesome. Mine's been grocery stores. I'm kind of boring. Like I said, I Heidi and I have been, you know, we've been, you know, doing a lot to kind of cook. So I'd say what we have done is we've tried to 
get out and we've spent our money supporting the local grocery stores. And I think we're probably late to the, the restaurant and the carryout scene. So probably here over the next few weeks, we're going to run out of recipes and we're going to have to start hitting up our local spots. Well, that's your uh, that's your final four for this week. All right, that wraps up another great week of Biz Dads. Andres, thanks a lot. Twist, thanks for that Millennial Minute. We'll probably have to delete that out. I don't know. We'll deal with it in post. <laughs> Just kidding. Thanks to our guest, Tim Spiker. Look forward to seeing you guys next week. This is Biz Dads. Biz Dads.